Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Max Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Rhiannon Evans. And I'm Matt Smith. This is Season 1, Episode 12, Callens of February. It was written by Bruno Heller and directed by Alan Taylor. In this episode, Varinus and Niobe finally get some semblance of happiness before it is cruelly snatched away from them. Julius Caesar finally gets some semblance of happiness before it is cruelly snatched away from him. And Titus Pullo finally gets some semblance of happiness. That's a reasonable summary, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, indeed. Indeed, yes. Proving he is the real hero of the piece. So what did you think of this episode? Did you like it? It's been such a big build-up to this one, I think. I know. There are things I liked about it a lot and things I mm. liked less. And I, mm. I think that there was a, a little bit of why did they stray so far away from what we know at one point. You can probably guess what it is. I, yeah, I really can because it's, as far as I know, the most straying that they've done away from history. I guess that we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, just initially, let's talk about the title of the episode, Callens of February. What's the deal with that? They didn't go with the easy win of Ides of March. Well, I think that may be the key to the episode. They're trying not to do that throughout because this is one of the most famous events from ancient Rome, plus Shakespeare wrote a play. So they don't want to give us what's overly familiar. I liked Callens of February, which, you know, means the 1st of February, but it's not a dating system that we're familiar with. So like mm. Ides, you know, we have to be told that in March, the Ides is the 15th. People don't necessarily know that the Callens means the 1st. That makes it sound like you have to know to understand. It's more that it, it's got a bit of that distancing. Like, you know, mm. the Romans did things differently and their dating system is different. And I guess it invites you to look into that and think about the Ides of March. I, I think most people, when they think about it, they think of the beware word and it sounds like a frightening day, but it literally means the middle of the month. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that that's the most known part of the phrase though the ides part it's more uh taken in the context of you know the horrors of march or you know the something bad that's going to happen in march i mean they could have gone for calends of march but they're going back a month to give us the idea that we've got the build-up we've got six weeks of build-up to the to the event that we know mm. has to happen yeah so the narrator says in the episode uh, the narrator, the orator, the newsreader. It'd be very good if he did narrate the whole episode. Uh, <laughs> says in this episode, uh, the line that this is the calendar of February, today on the calendar of February. So I guess that if you take that this episode goes until the middle of March, you do have a lot of build-up, yeah. That didn't occur to me because it doesn't seem like you get a lot of build-up as well. It seems like things happen very quickly, as I always say in the show. <laughs> Well, there's a lot of action in there. Yeah, that's for sure. Okay, so the episode begins with Artia and was it Octavia? Uh, and they're uh, at the theatre, the second time we've seen the theatre, although this time there's a dramatic reenactment of the arena fight from the last episode with Varinus saving Pullo. I like, mm. I like the start of the episode a lot. When it came up, I thought, hang on, we did this in a previous episode where we had that kind of pantomime reenacting events but they're kind mm. of doing it again but it's very different events this time because last time it was from caesar's civil wars when he's fighting scipio and cato 
So kind of reenacting that for the masses. This time, it's not famous people enacting kind of great events of state or great events of moment that will be history. It's an apparently, I wouldn't say trivial event, but, you know, Polo and Varenus are very much minor characters compared to Caesar, but they're now being put into this same framework as well. They're being commemorated and the event of Varenus saving Polo from being punished in the arena has become kind of part of this uh, theatrical history. Mm, so mm. I, I think it's a deliberate parallel. It was portrayed a lot more realistically than the Cato Scipio fight was, uh, and that's maybe because there were more people who were witnesses to this event. You know, from everything of um, the strikes of the sword to Varinus having red hair, there were no big willies, no phallus symbols to be seen. Yeah, there, um, there was no obscenity yeah. this time, was there? And I think that that might re- reflect that, you know, when you have great figures, there is a bit like us with with our political satire. It's sort of an open goal to take them down a peg or two. Oh, you mean like how you've got a, a cartoon in a newspaper or yeah. a politician, they'll have exaggerated features. Or Napoleon yeah. always being short in those kind of cartoons. Exactly. Uh, exactly oh, yeah. that. Whereas okay. Polo and Verena are kind of more on their level. Although I did notice Atia in the crowd and I was thinking, oh, how likely is it that she would be there? I, we did actually have uh, the great and the good in the crowd last time as well. I don't know if I'm bringing my own ideas of snobbery to this, that they would be going to proper theatre. <laughs> and it may, be, it may well be that the Romans didn't have that, that same sense of uh, people of certain status only observing certain kinds of entertainment. But it seemed like a plot device having them there to mm. maybe to remind us that because we haven't seen it for a while, that Polo and Octavian had that kind of mentoring relationship at one point. That all fell apart very quickly, though, didn't it? I kind of thought that was going to be built in a little bit more, but Polo went right off the rails after that. Yeah, but Octavian did send the lawyer to defend Polo, so there's there's some tie there still remaining. And, you know, that'll become more apparent in the future as well as Octavian develops, I guess. The next scene that we get is is Polo in hospital, which was a a bit more of an official hospital than I'm used to seeing in Rome. Did that strike you as something accurate? I think our information on this is a bit limited. I mean, most kinds of medicine will be on a private basis. So, you know, you're sick. If you can afford it, you'll send for the doctor. Mm. Or what we've seen before, the military will obviously have places like that because they'll have so many casualties. So... I'm not sure we know of very many facilities like that. What we do know is that there were sort of medical establishments, including temples on Tiber Island, which is right in the Tiber in the city. That was Mm. a temple of Asclepius and there were some medical facilities there. So he hasn't been sent there. And I was perhaps over-reading, thinking, well, Varenus has had to send him away because it's too dangerous for him to be around because what they've done is, is very dodgy anyway, taking him from the jaws of justice. But I may well be overreading there. Mm. And it's it may be just for the plot that he's somewhere else and he struggles to get all the way back to Varenus's house. That, that says something about the, the pull. He's always coming back there, isn't he? He can't stay away. What are you doing? Sorry, 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 sorry. I'm just taking your likeness, sir. Taking my likeness? What do you mean? Speak, thief. <laughs> all right, so Pullo 
All right, so Pullo leaves the hospital and uh, he heads back to Rome. Doesn't have the the best time on the trip and pretty much rocks up to Varinus's house uh, half dead. I did like how that there's an artist there taking his likeness, which seems to be an amazing amount of background work to be done during that time if you're just paid to paint a, a mosaic up on the wall, really. Yeah, and that yeah. artist needs danger money for being near Polo. <laughs> <laughs> and then we do see it on the wall later, don't we? We see the graffiti. The graffitied version seems a lot less sophisticated um, and detailed than that drawing that we're getting in the surgery. Well, maybe it wasn't his. Maybe his is on another wall somewhere looking pretty great. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, I did like how Pullo finds out, oh, he's famous, he'd better go back and make the most of that going back to Rome. That's true. Uh, he's not just going back to see Varenus, is it? It's, it's to... Uh, it's completely not that. <laughs> fruits of his fame. <laughs> I like that idea that, I mean, certain gladiators, although he's a gladiator for a very short time, were very famous and, and you know, they got celebrity from their actions as charioteers did as well. For Polo, it's come from that one incident, uh, a very dramatic incident in the arena. I think that, mm. that, that sort of, well, it's not quite exactly that that we have evidence of. We do know that people could become huge stars through having performed in the arena. All right, so Polo leaves the hospital and uh, he heads back to Rome. Doesn't have the, the best time on the trip and pretty much rocks up to Varinus's house uh, half dead. I did like that when Pullo got back to Rome, the doctor that was tying him to the bed and giving the medical advice was the same one that gave him the head surgery in episode two. So he's clearly a, uh, a doctor that lives on the street. Pullo's personal attendant. Pullo needs a lot of medical attention. I did not notice that. So well done on uh, recalling because unless you've been watching things again, probably uh, over a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't. I've just been trawling the internet movie database. Don't tell me that. It seemed very impressive. <laughs> I'm lifting up the veil of secrecy to show that I'm really not that impressive. No, it was more than a year ago. Yeah. <laughs> We've got Verinus and Niobe having a, a ceremony to bless some land that Verinus has, which was interesting and I think more of a scene to show some closeness between Verinus and Niobe. Yes. I have to say, I haven't gone and done the research on it, so I apologise, but I don't know whether that ritual was ever carried out mm. as some kind of fertility of the soil ritual. But yeah, I think you're quite right that it was much more about what happens when they, they're kind of out of earshot of other people and that they've got a shared understanding now of certain things. They can sort of make fun of each other and there's a little bit of that in other scenes as well, which, of course, makes the whole episode so much sadder. Yes. I mean, I think that was that was all intentional. Yeah. Uh, I kind of wish that they hadn't rushed all of that into the one episode because they knew that they were going to cruelly take it all away from us at the end of it. Niobe's death at the end of this episode struck me as really slightly shoehorned in. I don't know if they needed to, you know, move on the character for another reason or, you know, if you've got the storyline of her having a son uh, to another man, which is, you know, something that they started the season with and kind of let by the wayside, how else are you going to resolve it mm. without seeing, you know, some brutal Rome street justice kind of thing? It was the gun in Act 1, wasn't it? 
that was always there waiting to be set off. It does reflect the fact that uh, from what we know of the way Roman women are perceived and treated, it kind of rings true for me that she wouldn't be able to live with the shame of knowing that other people knew. For anyone who's read any early Roman history stroke myth, it automatically reminded me, it's a very different context, of the myth of or the legend of Lucretia, who kills herself, stabs herself in the chest um, after she's been raped. And she just doesn't. She doesn't see a place that she can continue to live, even though her husband and her father tell her, in the version we have from from Livy, that um, you know she did not intend any wrong, and and it's the it's the king's son. He will be punished for it. Nevertheless, even though that's part of the narrative, you sort of get the feeling that from the Roman point of view, they still can't kind of place her after she's been shamed. And I'm doing air quotes for that in this way. <sighs> I mean, it's not rape that has happened to Niobe. It's a relationship she entered into voluntarily when she thought her husband was dead. But it still seems to fit that from the Roman point of view, she's now kind of outside of the accepted place for women. We don't know whether that's the actuality. I mean, there must have been adultery and extramarital relationships all the time. It doesn't not fit. It doesn't seem wrong from what we know of at least the official version of Roman marriage and the position of women and attitudes towards women, that she's kind of internalized that. Mm-hmm. And it maybe, mm-hmm. maybe what you're saying about the detail we get, the sort of close relationship that's developed between Varinus and Niobe makes it all the worse for her. She can't live up to that relationship in that way anymore. They that closeness won't be there anymore. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm, so, I'm I'm being armchair psychologist now, which I really shouldn't be. I'm no good at that. No, no, no. I mean, but in some ways, you know, you can see it as her actions have brought shame upon the household. Yada yada yada. You've also got the other thing of the double standard. You know, if this was Verenus's bastard child that he had had to another woman, well, that's a thing that happens. You know, Rome seems to be a lot more okay with that sort of thing happening. But maybe it's also to do with the fact that Verenus has now been made a senator in this episode and she's brought shame upon somebody of that level. Mm. And just the guilt that she's, you know, cheated on her husband. But that could just be me putting my modern sensibilities on a, a character from a couple of thousand years ago. So... Yeah, I don't know. The modern part of me as well also wants to call it fridging. You know, something bad happening to a woman, killing off a woman in order to further the man's storyline, which it completely is. But the Romans were big fans of kitchen appliances, just in general. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) I think it's quite hard for us to take that happening. Um, Yeah. I agree with everything you said that, you know, we see that narrative a lot in Hollywood film or, you know, wherever TV shows. It's kind of become that trope that we sort of recognize and think, oh, this again, you know, like if there's a black buddy, then they're probably going to be killed off in an action movie. Mm -hmm. Similarly, women are disposable, as you say, in order to further the narrative of the man who's the center of the narrative. So, yeah, in that sense, it's a little disheartening to see that happen yet again. 
And maybe it would have been more interesting if, you know, there would have been a tension, there's no doubt, between Varenus and Niobe. And if she was still around, they'd have had to figure that out, whether he divorced her, whether he decided to ignore this. I mean, in a way, he still has to figure it out because the very last scene we see with him is the child entering the room. And the last mm. thing she said is the child is innocent. And just to rub it in, he's got a play sword in his hand. And of course, his <laughs> father was not a soldier, but his apparent father is one. So I'm sure there was a message there that it's uh, maybe been more about nurture than nature. I would have liked them to have a, a happy ending to the season. I liked them together. They were a, a nice couple once they worked out their problems. And Varinus got over all that anger that he was carrying with himself all the time. But yeah. All back. All back now. Yeah, yeah. And there was a, one very nice scene that they had around the dinner table with their daughter when they're talking about getting her a, a, a husband, a nice old man, a nice old senator. A senator's daughter cannot be running around unattached. Oh, there's no hurry. Well, don't worry. We'll find you a good, rich old man you can wrap around your little finger. Beauty like you can have your pick, eh? I told you I don't want a rich old man. Of course you do. Just think of all those fine dresses and jewels and slaves you'll have. I don't care about such trivial things. Trivial? Bit gross, bit creepy, but again, I completely bought it given the context. So. Yeah, and I think that also, if anything, should have helped to distance you from your modern conceptions of love or marriage, Matt, because they were being very, you know, very kind of arranged marriage is the norm and you don't love someone before you're married to them. That happens afterwards. So the fact that they found that abnormal, we're being shown that this is not our modern Western conception of love. All right. Shall we talk Caesar? Oh, please. This is all we're going to get to talk about him, except I suppose his ghost will loom large. Mm. Okay, let's just go right past the note that I've put here that there were no cockatoos in ancient Rome. 15 minutes into the episode, we've got the newsreader uh, reading out a decree uh, on the calendar of February that 100 new men are to be raised to the Senate Republic. Uh, Mark Antony calls these people long-haired ghouls and blue-faced Celts. Oh, okay. Oh, yes. Big size in my household at that point. Yeah. So, so this was essentially giving the people who were conspiring against Caesar a motive uh, that he is essentially defiling the Senate by inviting yeah. these long-haired Gauls and blue-faced Celts in. Off you go, Rhiannon. and where do you start? <laughs> well, Caesar did enlarge the Senate. All right, he eventually got it to 900. They're starting from that point. He stacked it with people who would back him. Um, he did not introduce Gauls into the Senate. I mean, it makes no sense. He literally Just you know, conquered them. 10 years earlier conquered them, yeah. They're still mortal enemies, really. Two episodes but, ago, he cut off Vercingetorix's head. Exactly well, he what I was you, just about know, to say. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. They hold nothing but um, anger and contempt for him after that, one would think. Nonsense there. I mean, it, it may be that they're just leaping forward 100 years to the time that the Emperor Claudius introduces the Gauls into the Senate, and that is resented, and he gets it passed, but we know he had to make a, a speech telling the Senate that these people have been citizens of Rome for a century, right? Mm. And uh, this is what Rome stands for. This stands for kind of integration, really, he's saying. But 100 years later, the senators are still resenting it. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy. And 
I think, given that we don't get the, we don't really get access to the other motives that we know something about for the assassination of Caesar, this is about kind of simplifying our attitude towards Caesar and the assassins. In that Caesar is trying to do good stuff. He's going to do all of that infrastructure stuff that we'll come to in a minute. Mm. But the senators, they're basically racist. They're snobs and they're racists. We don't want these low-down scum and these foreigners invading and kind of watering down the high-classness of our Senate. It's kind of giving them motives that we read as portraying them in a very bad light. I don't know. Your thoughts on it? Pretty much the same. I think it's a a symptom of compressing the storyline massively and not being able to have the time to show the other ways that Caesar angered the Senate, that we know are the motives. We don't get to see any of those sort of things. Yeah, but you could compress it, couldn't you? I mean, we've got a scene that we're told by Caesar's biographers. We've talked about it many times, the one where Antony tries to put a crown onto Caesar's head. That's very fast. He tries three times. Caesar's looking at the crowd to see how they, whether they accept it or not, and they don't look happy. This idea that that Caesar is now a king, and so he keeps batting it away. I mean, that's mm. and that's a great piece of reading the room. And I'm not saying I absolutely don't have the attitude that they can't do anything that isn't in the sources. It's just I don't really know what the reason for this was, except what I've suggested there, that they're trying to kind of paint it as black and white, which I feel like they haven't done throughout the series. I mean, especially Mm. when we've been shown Brutus and Brutus feeling really torn. And, you know, we have seen that the senators have reasons to be suspicious of Caesar, but I felt like they didn't kind of hold their nerve to the end and show us Caesar's potential as a tyrant. I think that if they did that scene with Caesar refusing the crown, that's a very different Caesar to the one that they've shown in this show. I don't think that the Kieran Hine Caesar could get away with doing that and it being something that you'd buy the character doing. Mm. Whereas uh, him making Gaul's senators, it's a very manipulative thing to do and it's showing little regard for the Senate, but it's not saying that he's a king. There's a kind of difference in what Caesar's intentions are that would make it one step too far for this portrayal of the character. I think that's really interesting. I don't know if I entirely agree with you. I I feel like he's always had an eye on... That was such a teacher thing to say. What you're saying has a few good points, but (laughs) here's why you're wrong. I even saw you... I'm not saying you're wrong. Maybe it wouldn't have worked um, for this characterization of Caesar. We'll never know until we see it. You know, we can write our alternate version, I guess, and maybe we can get Kieran Hines to film it for us. (laughs) (laughs) But um, but I I feel like he has at times had an eye. I'm trying to recall exactly what he said in the scene and I can't. But remember the one where he was deciding how much purple he could get away with? When he was in with. Before the triumph. triumph. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like he had an eye on perception then that he's. Mm. I mean, the real man who's going to do this if, if they portray him in this way is Octavian. And he's always keeping an eye on what will work with the people of Rome and, and actually kind of molding what they should think is kind of genuine Romanness and that kind of thing, genuine mm. Italianness too. 
So I guess I've seen signs in Caesar that this might have fit with, but I also have to admit that that's just one of my favourite stories about Caesar. So I was dying to see it (laughs) done by Kieran himself. But they've gone a completely different direction. They don't want to show any justifiable reasons, I think. It's a Senate that seems to have problems with Caesar for no real cause except being obsessed with their own position. Yeah. It's the biggest divergence that they do from history, I think. I mean, they've they've left stuff out for, you know, for pacing reasons and what have you, but this is the biggest kind of made things up thing, I think. That's a terrible way to put it, but anyway, let's just <laughs> ignore that and and on we go. So, Caesar has a giant map on the floor, which uh, means that, you know, he beat Game of Thrones to it. I know that you won't recognize that reference, but those who have seen both will. I know that um, thing. <laughs> yeah. He says uh, he's going to divert the river by building a canal to the Vatican Hills to stop the flooding, which this, I think, should have been something that happened, and make it easier to cross to the field of Mars, which is the campus Martius, essentially. He's establishing that, isn't he? That sort of makes sense because Caesar is developing that area as a kind of public space of Rome. So traditionally mm. it's been where the army gathered, but he's starting to build public buildings there and there'll be temples. Well, actually already Pompey's put a theatre there. So it's kind of becomes the entertainment zone of Rome under Octavian, under Augustus but it's starting with Julius Caesar. So I don't know whether they're deliberately getting at that or they're just dropping in names around Rome. We know that he was very interested. You know, he was building a new Senate house. He was rebuilding bits of the forum. And when he says that he's going to build a temple to Venus, the birth giver, I've never heard it called that before, Um, Mm. but he's referring to the temple of Venus Genetrix, which you can still see columns of in the forum of Julius Caesar very near the Roman Forum. So, you know, they kind of know what they're talking about there and and it does reflect some of the plans that Caesar had. Yeah. He was also making a world map. I know that's not a world map because it's a plan of Rome, but he did have an interest in depicting space. Uh, So Varinus comes in at that point and Caesar tells him, by rights, I could have you thrown off the Tarpeian rock, which I like the reference to. I've heard of that rock before where people got executed. By popular acclaim, I will name Lucius Varinus a senator of Rome. Here, uh, as far as Caesar goes in the show, he's following Octavian's advice to him a few episodes ago of uh, creating lots of senators and populating it with people who are close to you. And that comes back to the hairy Gauls kind of thing as well. Does Mark Antony say that or am I thinking it? Long-haired Gauls and (laughs) blue-faced Celts. So, yeah, close enough. I think you have picked up on something, which is that the Gallia Comata, further off bit of Gaul, that's what they called it. We probably talked Mm. about this somewhere, means hairy Gaul. I'm flashing back to our Caesar's Gallic War podcast by saying that. Forgive me, but really, I must, as a friend, <laughs> I must, I must protest. A lowly pleb in the Senate, that's going too far. No offence to you, Varinus. I do not wish to jump in any arenas, Cicero. I must please the people in some other fashion. Build yet another temple, kill someone. The people are easy to please, not this. I wish the Senate to be made of the best men in Italy, not just the richest old men in Rome. An intriguing notion. 
I don't like how it was Cicero who was the one who was protesting so much to all of these changes because I know that he was somebody who wasn't highborn. Yeah, look. Did that strike you as disingenuous? It didn't actually. If you're being mean to Cicero, then there's plenty of evidence to say that he didn't come from one of the traditional aristocratic families of Rome, but he was very much a gatekeeper pulling up the ladder behind him, whatever kind of metaphor you (laughs) want to use. He's not necessarily reaching out a hand to all and sundry to get in there too. He got in there by his talent, which was the equivalent of going to war in his mind or the equivalent of having illustrious ancestors. Also, we say that Cicero comes from nowhere, but it's not really nowhere. I mean, he comes from fabulous wealth. It's just that none of his family has been in the Senate before. So compared to, you know, the families of the Scipios and the the Caesars and people like that, the Julii, what annoyed me slightly, but I know why they did it, is the way we use pleb and the way they use it are not the same. So we use it to mean kind of low down, scummy, maybe. They used it to talk about the vast majority, actually, of Roman families by this point are plebeian. They're of lower status. But it's not like you had to be from a patrician family to be in the Senate. I know I'm splitting hairs here. The Julie, Julius Caesar's family were patrician. They weren't particularly wealthy till he made loads of money. But that wasn't the norm. Not that many families were patrician by this point. In fact, one of the things that Roman moralists tended to say is that the patrician families were all dying out because everything in Rome was was kind of going downhill morally. They weren't marrying and having children and, and, you know, it's all going to hell in a handcart and that kind of thing. So he wouldn't have said, oh, he's a, a lowly pleb because technically Cicero's a pleb as well. He's from a plebeian family, but most mm. people are. It's not a hill of Rome I'm going to die on, but it still annoyed me. (laughs) (laughs) So we know it wasn't anything to do with long-haired gauds or blue-faced Celts. And besides the presenting of Caesar the Crown, what else could they have tapped into for this episode? Because that wasn't the only motive, was it? Mostly it's about symbolic things that Caesar does, according to our sources. So the crown, it would be part of that. It's kind of, you know, he gets to wear his triumphal gear all the time, pretty much. And you're meant to do it for one day. And on that one day, you're practically a god. He's made himself dictator for life. You know, that word dictator that doesn't quite mean what we mean by it. It means somebody who takes over in a crisis and therefore has a lot of power. You know, basically the consulship becomes irrelevant at that point because the dictator can veto anything, can order anything. But that's why you do it when you're losing a war badly or there's a fire or, you know, some crisis of some kind, that's when you need a dictator. But he has given himself dictator for life status and it's been written, you know, it's on coinage and that kind of thing. He's given himself all of these titles as permanent titles. He's got consulship after consulship. He's not the very first to do that, but that's another sign that he's not obeying the laws of the Republic. The whole idea of the rules of the Republic are falling apart. In fact, we've got a good quote from Suetonius. Shall I read it out from chapter 76, which is kind of the list of some of these things and others? Yeah, yep, yep. Go ahead. It is thought that he abused his power and was justly killed. Mm. I don't know if Suetonius agrees with that or just says that the people who say this think he was justly killed. Not only did he accept excessive honours, one consulship after another, permanent dictatorship, responsibility for morals, 
that means that he's the censor, which is a very powerful role, as well as the forename Imperator, which doesn't quite mean emperor at this point, but very, very powerful, and the title Father of this Fatherland, so Pater Patriae. Also a statue displayed with those of the kings. That's really pushing it, putting your mm. statue amongst those of the kings, and a raised seat at the theatre. You're above everyone else. He even allowed privileges to be bestowed on him, which were greater than his right for mortals. So not just kingship, but actual deification, some people saw going on. And the kind of things there are a golden seat in the Senate House. We certainly saw one seat being put in the Senate, didn't we? I can't remember it's, if it was golden. It's throne-like. In the show's defence, uh, Brutus and Cassius were talking about how over the top that chair was and how rule-breaking it was. So they get marks for that, I think, yeah. So not only a golden seat in the Senate House, but also in front of the Speaker's platform. Also a chariot and litter in the procession for the circus games, which, you know, enormously popular, so everyone would see that. Statues Mm. placed beside those of the gods, which is kind of mentioned already. A priest and a month of the year named after him, hence July. He put his own slaves in charge of the mint, so he's controlling money, and command of three legions in Alexandria to the sons of his freedmen, one of his pretty boys, <laughs> one of his sex slaves, basically. So yeah. he's already, and actually that last one, giving power to freedmen, or at least the offspring of freedmen, is something we associate with the emperors and you know, our senatorial sources often accuse emperors, emperors being bad for doing this, emperors like Claudius and Nero. But you can see the, the seeds of it here with Caesar himself. See, I, I guess that if they showed all of this in the episode, I would be sitting there going, well, well so what? Maybe it, it wasn't outrageous enough and they needed to go the making Gaul senators kind of thing to make it more of a motive. I don't know. If they showed him with a nice chair, I'd go, okay, he's got a nice chair. Okay, he's wearing purple. Oh, statue. Okay, he's got a nice statue up there. You know, it's it doesn't seem like... But you could do what, what you already mentioned, which is show the horrified reaction. I feel like they've done a bit of that, so they've pulled away from it. You said, you know, when he had the one seat, whereas there were two seats, one for each of the consuls, one of them gets taken away and there's this sort of throne-like seat that Caesar sits on. And we see Brutus and Cassius looking appalled. I think you could do the same for some of these other honours to show that it's kind of outrageous or unusual. Caesar setting himself above. I mean, literally, I guess they've already done the seat. But if they did the one in the theatre where he's higher than everyone else, that's pretty easy to see what's going on. And they could mention that, because I think this still happens, doesn't it? Once... Uh, it happens in, I'm not going to name the country because I can't remember, but I know it's one of the ex-Soviet republics where all the months of the year were renamed. Or if somebody decides that this is year one, the first mm. year of their rule, this is not what Caesar does, but, you know, messing around with the calendar. As I say, renaming certain aspects of the calendar or time, is that's control of time. I mean, that's a pretty mm. big deal. So I think we would understand that. And I don't want to just argue for the series that wasn't or, you know, episodes in the series that weren't but i do think that our sources give us i think some really good opportunities to show why caesar became unpopular with senators and i do feel that they had started to do that so maybe it's a function of having different writers at different times 
they moved into a slightly different gear in this final episode. And and I'm not saying that you have to buy the idea that Caesar did deserve to die, but I think it's good to show us the tensions between him and the Senate to show that he kind of made a mistake, a strategic mistake, in forgiving and bringing back into the fold people that he then couldn't retain on his side because of the way he behaved, Mm. because of the kind of power he wanted. The tragedy for Caesar from the sources we have, from my point of view, is that he didn't match up the kind of people that he brought back into the Senate and accepted, like Brutus, like Cicero, with the kind of leader that he was going to be. He didn't see that they were not going to accept that. Which is not to say, by the way, that Cicero was part of the conspiracy. They were quite right to show him as not being part of that. Mm. Okay, I've I've burbled on long enough about that. Do you have any other comments or do you want to move on? Uh, Just the only comment is that I I think the newsreader, one of his lines were that one of the months was being named after Caesar. So they even saw fit to drop that in there briefly as a bit of a sidebar. Thank you. I missed that. I wasn't Mm. paying proper attention, so I'm sorry about that. But I'm glad they did that, at least. Wherever you are, you're not enjoying yourself. It was another dream of omens. You're becoming quite the oracle. Shall I send for some willow water? We'll sleep better. I was in the country. Please, I have had such dreams for years. Uh, We get a a brief scene in which uh, Caesar is... um, in bed there lying next to his wife who i forgot existed for a while there (laughs) and uh, she wakes up having dreamt of an omen of bad things going on and we actually see before she wakes up an omen so you've written here in your notes that you've missed it i missed so many things apparently thank god you watched it too so tell me what you saw it showed Varinus's farm. I'm assuming it was Varinus's farm. There was a big flock of birds flying over and they came together in the shape of a skull and then dispersed. But you had to be watching for it. I'll screenshot wow. for you. It's pretty cool. I'm going to have to go back and look again. I um, am always looking out for omens. <laughs> I know you love them. And were you disappointed there wasn't more going on with soothsayers or, I don't know, um, thing, people tripping up? That's always a good omen for the Romans. That it was kind of boiled down to, well, the one I missed, the the skull shape of the bird patterns, but also to his wife saying that she had a bad feeling about what was going to happen and had a dream. And that kind of boiled all of those omens down into one short scene. I think that's what they were trying to do. I wasn't hugely disappointed about it because, you know, it becomes a bit silly after a certain point. Uh, I was more so disappointed that we didn't get more of Caesar's wife. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and I'm guessing she's not going to be in the second season. She's only been there at times when we need her for Caesar's story. Yes. To to explain part of the breakdown of the relationship with Servilia as it's portrayed here. We haven't even named her. That's bad on our part. She's Calpurnia. Calpurnia. Um, There you go. I didn't know that. (laughs) Played by Hayden Gwynn, if I remember rightly. She gets brought in maybe two or three times to explain things about Caesar. To explain maybe something about his character as well, he always seems to treat her with consideration. The idea is that partly he broke off with Servilia to sort of save her feelings, I guess, because there was was graffiti. And I I don't think we got the impression that he was doing it because he was worried about his own reputation. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Part of her reason for being there is to show us Caesar's sensitive side. Mm. I mean, he doesn't seem very in love with her, but he wants to consider her. 
I think if you give her too much of a storyline, you'd take away from Atia, who fulfilled a lot of the functions that Caesar needed from a woman in his family. And you need Atia for Octavian. Yeah, you can't have too many women after all. No, <laughs> hell no. <laughs> can't have them talk to each other unless they're sniping at each other like Atia and Servilia. Uh, let's now talk about the meat of the episode, which is the last 10 minutes of the episode. It's probably not even that, actually, which is the assassination of Caesar. So the morning starts off for Caesar with the people who are conspiring against him isolating him after deciding that he needs to die on the floor of the Senate. This can't be something that's done underhandedly. It can't be poison. It can't happen in his sleep. It needs to happen where they're making a statement of it. And he needs to be the only one that dies. So they decide to isolate him in that kind of way. And you get the scene of uh, Varinus being pulled away, being told that his wife had a son to another man and he's got to go and deal with that right now. And you get Mark Antony at the same time being isolated, which I think tracks with the history books. It was a soldier that pulled him away. Yeah, and somebody asking for a petition, petitioning him, presumably, mm. to get, get something to, to Caesar. That works well. The idea is they've got to get Antony away, A, because he's dangerous, and B, because they don't want to kill him. They don't want mm. him there. But in our TV version, they've also got to get Varinus away because he's seen as somebody who can defend Caesar. Although I have to say there's such a large number of senators involved. Even Varinus, surely. I guess he's being commemorated on the walls of Rome. Maybe he is seen as this larger-than-life character who might be able to take them all down. I think that if Varinus was there, that he would have intervened. He would have been right there in the thick of it and he would have died before Caesar died. Yeah. And they don't so, want to kill anyone else, I guess. I think it's Sevilia who says to Brutus and Cassius that this is the hero of the people. We don't want to take yeah. their hero away from them. Yeah. Uh, from the populace because, you know, you don't do that sort of thing. I just had to kind of marvel at the the long tortured path that the, the information about this bastard child took Pullo and Octavian, tortured the news out of Evander Pulchio before they killed him, cut off yeah. all his fingers and one at a time. Oh, yes. Don't remind mm -hmm. me. He's the biological yeah. father, of course. I remembered right. that, but then I didn't remember how the information got to Servilia, but you do remember. Octavia sleeps with Octavian and gets him to tell her a secret, and that is the piece of information that he tells her. And then Octavia tells Servilia, who dismisses it out of hand as not mattering, but clearly files it away. When the name Lucius Varinus is mentioned in her household, that triggers her memory of the piece of information. And yeah. so it's like a really long season, long payoff for it to get all the way back to Varinus that way. Yeah, which, you know, now you just post on Facebook and be done with it. God, God forbid. <laughs> it also potentially gives us the reason for the incest and the relationship between Octavia and Servilia. Everything had a purpose. There yeah. you go. So Caesar's assassination didn't happen in this room. This was a very kind of idealized Senate that they've always shown them being in, but it would have been theatre of Pompey that it happened in because they were a bit nomadic at this time, weren't they, where they were meeting? 
Well, we've talked before about how the Senate House had been burnt down in 52 and that the building they would have been in, even if they were in the Forum, wouldn't have been as fancy as this. It's being rebuilt. Octavian will finish it, but after Caesar's death. But clearly this is the set they've got, so it's the one that they're using for the Senate Mm. meeting. I think it's kind of a shame because there are productions, I think one of the films of the the Shakespeare play that do set it in the theatre of Pompey, and then have Caesar fall right beneath the statue of Pompey. So, you know, it's like revenge. Not that he himself killed Pompey, but Caesar defeats the senators and the Pompeians in the Civil War and then symbolically is killed at the foot of his old enemy. What we do actually get, though, is, okay, so the guy who directed this episode, Alan Taylor, also directed previously the episode with the triumph in it, He's either a former history professor or a historian of some sort. So he apparently was really keen to stick as close to the sources as he could. And I know that we've got a lot of accounts of Caesar's death. I think it's the most accounts of any historical event in Rome that we've got. Isn't that about right? We've got about six to eight, I think, in one form or another. There are a lot. Yeah, there are. I mean, we start off with two biographies, but we've got plenty of historical accounts too. So a lot of the things that happened in this, I recognise bits of from reading accounts, but it seemed to mostly be from Suetonius's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's not surprising. It's quite lengthy and perhaps the best known. I know, Barker, I know, I have not forgotten. If I may, gracious Caesar, you were going to consider revoking my brother's exile. I'm still considering it. Take your hand off me. What are you waiting for? Now! 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 I thought they did it pretty well. I mean, it was brutal. If you care about his accuracy, which I guess I do to an extent, they have the right people starting it off. Kimber, one of the senators, tries to petition Caesar directly to ask him to release his brother from exile in this case before kind of starting the attack and Caesar temporarily rebuffs him. Kimber is the one who grabs him and manhandles him and Casca's the curly-haired one, went to have him with the knife and Caesar grabbed the knife. Yeah, whereas in Suetonius's account, Caesar stabs him with his stylus. Mm, I was waiting for that one, yeah. Kind of like that better, <laughs> yeah. Did feel a bit Game of thrones either grabbing the knife, you know, Mm. so the blood just trickles out of his hand. I I like that idea. Of course, I like that idea because I'm an academic of using the stylus as a weapon and Caesar being a writer (laughs) himself. It all seems to come together nicely there, which which may mean that it's apocryphal (laughs) in in that Suetonius is working on some rumour or making it up even. So it is a very dramatic enactment of the assassination. I don't think it covers up, as as we probably expect, doesn't cover up how nasty and bloody it is because it looked like maybe more to me, but we're told in several accounts that there's 23 wounds in his body. Mm. Uh, did you count? You've been good on no. detail. <laughs> no, but also I kept cutting between this scene and Varinus going back to his house, you know, just walking through the streets a bit. You don't get one continuous stab fest. <laughs> no. Certainly Suetonius's account and a lot of the accounts really concentrate on Brutus 
being one of the assassins. For a moment, I thought they were going to make him not one of the assassins because he takes so long. He's kind of uh, he's stunned by the whole thing, isn't he? He just holds back. He's mm-hmm. got a dagger, but he doesn't do anything with it. And I thought, oh, that would be a real break with tradition if Brutus is part of the conspiracy, but doesn't actually. I mean, we've seen that he's got this sort of love-hate relationship going on with Caesar. There are rumors that Caesar's his dad. He feels much more than Cassius. He he feels really drawn both ways, both towards and repelled by Caesar. But he does go in and, and give the, the final wound. We don't get the famous line, which I think they deliberately withheld from us. He doesn't. Yes. It's so familiar to us from Shakespeare that Shakespeare has the line, et tu brute. Suetonius says that Caesar said in Greek, kai su technon, which mm. means you too, child. So it's not Brutus's name, but in it, this feeds the flames of he really was his child, whereas technon might well just be a, a term of affection. Mm. Slightly ironic at this point, perhaps. So I thought they might riff on off that in some way, but they riff on it by leaving it out. What do you think? They, they're just playing with our expectations and aren't going to give it to us? Yeah, I think that it was perfectly fine without it. It was a really dramatic scene. It was it looked as horrible as it should. It looked terrible. I think that by him dying without saying a line like that, it just seems more dramatic. He just looks so betrayed. He doesn't need to say it. That was my thought, that if you've got an actor that good, they can say it with their eyes. Mm. And he does. Yeah. And just how he he tries to cover himself with his toga. Which is also in Suetonius trying to cover yourself up from what's happening, trying to not be this bloody dead body. He muffled his head in his robe. He actually says, in order to fall more decently, which I think plays very nicely, if you can say nicely about a scene like this, with this idea that everything for the Romans is performative. You know, we've mm. seen we've seen with the newsreader how performative oratory is, that even as Caesar, he knows this is his final act, his last time on stage. So he's trying to make sure his body is decently covered. Indeed, it's not in this episode. I don't know if it's going to come up at all in the second series, but Caesar's supporters, Mark Antony, most prominently, they make good use of the toga that comes off his body, which has these Mm. 23 stab wounds in it. They put it on show in the forum on a statue of Caesar. So they want to display to the people the violence that has happened to Caesar. I like how Mark Antony came into the room at the end, kind of took everything in, and then walked out without turning his back on the senators. (laughs) Yeah, you wouldn't, would you? (laughs) No, he just kind of walked backwards and then sideways and then exit stage left. Oh, stage right even, actually. (laughs) Horrible scene. I think it's quite hard to do a scene that people think they already know. It's so famous. It turns up in cartoons. Mm. So when we lose political leaders, there will be a cartoon of their supporters stabbing them and he'll be in a toga or she maybe. It kind of means it's the political assassination Mm. and measure everything else by. So in a way, I quite like that scene where they're deciding what to do and they think about poison and they think about other methods and they think about doing it in some dark corner. And then they decide, no, it's got to be in the open Senate. If they're going to do this, it's got to be really corporeal. They have to stick the knives directly in. They don't get someone else to do it. They don't do it secondhand um, by putting something in his food. 
which might also be a reference to the way that possibly several members of the imperial family will die. Uh, <laughs> rumours about that, that later on they get a bit more tricky with it. They're less direct. <laughs> okay, and that is pretty much the end of the episode. We've we've talked about Niobe and Varinus, and uh, that's another terrible scene. But Pule gets a happy ending. Yeah, a very unlikely happy ending, isn't it? They, they do like their sudden turnarounds, don't they? Caesar saying, I should have you thrown off the top hay and rock, but I'm going to make you a senator. Irene tries to kill Pulo, and then she's okay with him after all and holds his hand. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. If anyone can pull it off, I think it is him because he's so good at persuading you that he'll just lie there and let her kill him. You know, he accepts that he was to blame and he's quite persuasive that he'll take his punishment. And I guess that would be quite winning. He comes over as contrite to Irene. You look like you disagree with me there. <laughs> look, Pullo is such a nice guy. He's such a sweetheart that you cannot remain angry at him. Yeah, even and... though he's murdered your fiance. Yeah, but he's Pullo. <laughs> <laughs> In a way, you're right, because I have the two things going on in my head at the same time. He's murdered her lover. <laughs> but it's Pullo. But it's Pullo. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> You've been listening to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod, please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. While you're there, why not check out and subscribe to our other podcasts, Emperors of Rome and When in Rome. You can like Raising Standards on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow both of us on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans, I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. Until the next episode, I am Matt Smith. Take your hand off me. And thanks for listening.